May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So I wonder, if you walked around Boston and took a poll asking people the question, who do you say that Jesus is? What do you think the most popular answer would be? If you answered frowning and walking away as quickly as possible, because we don't talk to strangers here on the street, let alone about religion, uh, you'd probably be correct. So let me try again. If you could cast a magic spell that caused the entire population to treat you as if you were normal, rather than as if you had just started singing show tunes on the T, and you walked around Boston and asked people the question, who do you say that Jesus is? What do you think the most popular answer, honest answer, would be? Would it be the Messiah, the son of the living God? Would it be a wise moral teacher who inspires me to be a better person? Maybe a historical figure of obvious importance, but not one I follow myself? Or would it simply be, who cares? I'm not very good at conducting religious polls, clearly, but Pew Research is, and if you look at their results, it turns out that who cares is the fastest growing and close to the most popular answer. The majority of people in greater Boston still identify themselves as Christian of one flavor or another, but the re religiously unaffiliated nuns, nuns always as in nothing, not as in wimples, <laughs> the nuns are the single largest religious group now. While only 29% of people in greater Boston call themselves Catholics, and about a quarter, some kind of Protestant, 33% answer that they're religiously unaffiliated. Very few of those are outright atheists who actively disbelieve in God. Just a, a few percent identify themselves in that way. Most simply don't think about it much at all. One in five Bostonians, when asked their religious affiliation, give the answer, nothing in particular. And to be honest, to me, one in five sounds a little low. Who do people say that the Son of Man is, Jesus asks. Well, more and more, the answer is just a shrug. But who do you say that I am? Jesus follows up. And that question remains as central to our faith as ever, although the meaning of some of the answers may have changed. The ancient world in Jesus' day had many problems, but religious apathy was definitely not one of them. Who do people say that the Son of Man is, Jesus asks, and people had lots of ideas. And by the way, I should say, when Jesus says the Son of Man here, he just means me, essentially. And if you're really interested in Aramaic of the first century, we can talk at coffee hour more about that. I'd be really happy to. But Jesus is saying, who do people say that I am? And the disciples answer. Some say that you're John the Baptist, returned from the dead. And this is what Herod Antipas said, the Herod who had had John the Baptist beheaded when he heard of what Jesus was doing. It's John the Baptist, back from the dead. Others say that you're one of the prophets, like Elijah, who's supposed to return before the Messiah, or maybe Jeremiah or some other prophet. These seemed like plausible answers to the people of the time, reasonable ways of trying to explain who this incredibly charismatic young man was who was going around preaching and teaching and doing miracles. It seems that nobody 
among the people yet knew who Jesus was or what he was really there to do. But when Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter's answer, at least, is clear. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You are the one we've been waiting for all of our lives. The anointed king, the descendant of King David, the one who will deliver our people from Roman rule and set us free. And you're not just the Messiah, you're the Son of the living God. It's an interesting phrase. Caesarea Philippi is an interesting place to say it, because it's a carefully named place, and I think it's likely that Jesus chose it for that reason. It's not the more famous Caesarea that we all know, right? The one down on the coast that was the actual Roman political capital where Pontius Pilate and his soldiers spent most of the year. It's just a small town up in the north, but it's got a big name. It's named Caesarea for Caesar Octavian Augustus, the adopted son of Julius Caesar, the first true emperor of Rome. And it's named Philippi for its founder, Philip the Tetrarch, one of the four sons of King Herod. After Caesar's death, Octavian had encouraged the Senate to recognize that Julius Caesar had become a god. He had actually been divinized, and Octavian adopted the title Son of God. For their part, Herod and his sons were seen as illegitimate rulers by many of their subjects, who believed that only God, not Rome, could make a king. They might be King Herod or Philip the Tetrarch, but neither of them was the Messiah, God's chosen one. So for Jesus to stand outside the gates of Caesarea Philippi and ask Peter, who do you say that I am? And for Peter to answer, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, is a pretty radical act. You are the Messiah, our rightful king, not Herod or any of his sons. You are the true son of the living God, not the son of a dead emperor falsely proclaimed to be a god. No wonder Jesus calls him Peter, rock in Greek. Can't be soft if you're going to go up against Rome. Because this wasn't a question about private religious belief or late night wondering about who Jesus might be. This was a big theological and a political claim, a challenge to the legitimacy of the Roman Empire. This is the kind of thing that really mattered in the ancient world and that would really matter today. It's essentially sedition, right? This is what got Jesus killed. But, and here I'm happy to say this, we don't live in ancient Rome. We live in modern America. And while we sometimes get unusually devoted to politicians, we haven't yet started worshiping them as gods. So what does all of this actually matter for us? Jesus' question, I find interesting, isn't just about who Jesus is in that particular context. It's about who Jesus is in general. And he replies by telling Peter something about who Peter is because of who Jesus is. He gives Peter these three gifts, I'd almost call them. He tells him three things about who he is because of who Jesus is as the leader of the church. He gives him the gifts of community and hope and forgiveness. And through Peter and through the church founded on Peter, he gives those gifts to us. He gives Peter the gift of community through the foundation of the church, the creation of a body and a community that's distinct from the family or the city or the nation, 
a global and universal body that lives at its best according to the law of love. He gives Peter the gift of hope through the promise that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And this is an interesting claim. What are the gates of Hades? What does it mean for them to prevail? Are the gates of Hades there to keep us out, to cut off the connection that we feel to those who have died and gone before us? Are they there to keep the souls of the dead in, to block off any hope of future or eternal life? Either way, Jesus offers the Christian hope of the resurrection, the promise that we will one day rise again and live together with all those who we've loved and lost in the company of all the saints with God. And finally, Jesus gives Peter the gift of forgiveness, this power of the keys, the loosing and the binding that have traditionally been understood through the church's practices of confession and forgiveness and reconciliation. And I think that while the symbolic power of Peter's stand against Rome outside this city of Caesarea Philippi that would have meant so much to them and so little to us, while the symbolic power of that has faded with time, I think these three gifts remain as valuable for us as ever. After all, in a world in which TV, news, and social media connect us more and more to everyone around us, even while they make us feel more and more isolated and divided from one another, it seems like we need real community at least as much as Peter did. In a world in which the grief and pain of loss are as real and as profound as they've ever been, we need hope as much as Peter did. In a world in which every mistake can be recorded by a thousand cameras, in which it's easier to wash our hands of one another and walk away than to work together through any kind of conflict, we need to learn the practices of forgiveness and reconciliation at least as much as Peter did. And these aren't just nice things to do that are basically detached from the question that Jesus asks. They're part of the answer to the question of who Jesus is. Because if Jesus is the Messiah and not King Herod or any politician or system of law, then the kingdom to which we owe our allegiance is a kingdom founded on peace and love, not on violence and power. If Jesus and not Octavian is the Son of God, then his compassion, not the Roman emperor's violence, is the ultimate source of judgment and forgiveness. If Jesus truly is the Son of God, then in the end, his love can conquer anything, even death itself. In other words, the answer to who Jesus is really matters. It matters for what we actually do. Because if Jesus is just another guy, he doesn't have the power to give us those gifts other than through inspiration. So who do you say that Jesus is? And maybe even more importantly, how does that answer to the question, who do you say that I am, change who you are and how you choose to live your life? Does it make a difference if you believe that Jesus not only taught you to love, but also has the power to forgive your failures to love? Does it make a difference if you believe that Jesus not only lived and died long ago, but that you'll see him again one day face to face? Who do you say that Jesus is, and what difference does it make? Amen.